trusting me. I'm. This you are the one risking thing. humiliation. I am. This is so now. You know what, Chris? I understand now. Yeah. Do you feel that? You feel your heart pumping? You feel this desire to check in on the screen? I feel every a little, few seconds. I do. It's gonna. I mean, I see little like heartbeat signs on the screen, so I assume that's the sound of our voice being rendered digitally onto the recording. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you kick us off, Chris? Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Full Cast and Crew, a meticulously engineered podcast which reverse engineers film X, if X equals this week's film, cross-referencing Y, the Full Cast and Crew section of Film X's IMDb page, with Z, the co-host's thoughts, reactions, past experience, in order to catalog the components which include, but are not limited to, funny anecdotes, strange coincidences, surprise appearances, which can then be reordered to build a new piece of content hereafter designated X prime. Okay, math is hard, as we know from me, but I, that works for me, Chris. Uh, you're Chris. Uh, yes, and you're Jason. I'm Jason, thank you. I double check. And that. we are your hosts. We are your hosts of this this wonderful podcast. Before we get started with this week's movie, uh, which is Widows, yes, Steve McQueen's new film, uh, I do have some listener mail to go through. If um, you'd like so to hear this a few. Is this your favorite my part? Favorite part because okay. it's such a mystery to me. Well, you may not like it so much after <laughs> this part. <laughs> then again, I'm not cherry picking the listener reactions. These are fresh reactions as they come in. Okay? These are the people who are moved to put finger to keyboard. Exactly. Now, Ben in LA writes, "Quote." I've really grown to like Chris since listening to the podcast. I now think of him as a friend. Oh, and that's I nice. feel like we have a lot in common. But he is dead <laughs> wrong about inside Lewin Davis. What? I think Ben is referring to your the fact that love I love for love it. Yeah, that yeah. It's, yes. So interestingly, the I think it's Ben who is wrong. Well, the next person also references Lewin Davis, and I okay. think you might be interested to hear what I'd she, love to hear what, what she has to say. Uh, Rebecca from Cricklewood. Mm -hmm. That's where she's from, Cricklewood. Uh, That's in England, I trust you. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I should put a tie on then before I hear this comment. Because English people are smartly dressed? Yeah, just English people, they make me feel more formal. Okay. Well, Rebecca from Cricklewood writes, hello, Jason and Chris. Firstly, which I think is of English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Firstly, right? We're in good hands here. Americans do that. Firstly, I am enjoying the show. Strangely enough, it's making me laugh out loud, (laughs) in quotes, albeit quietly. Now, let me just stop. Strangely enough. And I'm finding both the banter and the caliber of your conversation entertaining and worthwhile, period, for the most part, period. So kudos and thank you. (laughs) I particularly appreciated the recent Ballad of Buster Scruggs episode, having enjoyed the film. I was looking forward to a robust dissection of the Old West mythologizing, some great commentary on the genius of Tom Waits, and a digression into an appraisal of the Coen brothers' oeuvre. Here are my takeaways from these three specific highlights. <laughs> Number one, please add trope to the list of words you are overusing. <laughs> Two, Jason, during your far too brief reference to Tom Waits in your discussion of the chapter All Gold Canyon, you tell listeners that, quote, we who know Tom Waits imbue him with a backstory, end quote, that isn't necessary to be aware of in order to appreciate him in this role. While that's certainly true, that's all you give your listeners? Do you presume that we are all familiar enough with Tom's musical genius and cinematic excursions to imbue him with this aforementioned backstory? Two question marks. Examples of said backstory next time, please! Exclamation point. Three, your discussion of the Coen Brothers filmography was the perfect end to the episode. I had hoped that a, quote, top three Coen Brothers films segue would take place, and I was not disappointed, appreciating as I do Jason's affection for top five lists. You've got a millennial streak in you. Please revisit Barton Fink. And Jason, you are wrong about Inside (laughs) Lewin Davis. (laughs) Anyway, thank you for making me smile inanely while I walk to the F train. Sincerely yours, Becca. One viewer thinks you're wrong. Actually, they both think the same thing. Oh no, 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 Ben, Ben agrees with me. That ben is that wrong about Lewin Davis, and you, Becca is right okay, about Lewin right. Davis. Okay, right. I see how it right. works. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they cancel each other out. Right. Speaking of wrong and right, uh, we're here to discuss the new film Widows, directed by Steve McQueen, based on a screenplay by McQueen and Gone Girl author Gillian Flynn. Gillian or Gillian? Um, I think it's Gillian. Okay. Uh, Widows is a story. But I'm of- basing that on nothing. I'm yes. Sure. Well, like everything we do here. <laughs> 
Widows is the story of four women with nothing in common except a debt left behind by their dead husband's criminal activities. Set in contemporary Chicago amid a time of turmoil, tensions build when Veronica, played by Viola Davis, Alice, Elizabeth Debicki, Linda, played by Michelle Rodriguez, and Belle, played by Cynthia Erivo, take their fate into their own hands and conspire to forge a future. Widows is based on Linda LaPlante's 1983 novel. And unbeknownst to me, until I saw the film and started digging into it, there have been a few iterations. It has these British origins and uh, pretty interesting ones as Rather well. Rather like House of Cards, it was uh, a, a miniseries that was uh, adapted, though, of course, in the House of Cards case, they stuck with the miniseries format. Indeed. The director, Steve McQueen, had some insight into his take on the film in a recent episode of the DGA podcast. Mm -hmm. This is where we'll play a little of that. Oh, are we allowed to do that or are we cannibalizing by- No, no, we can play a little stuff of it. This film for me is about the fundamental, is is about the fundamentals of America as as an outsider, as I see it. Um, And what I mean by that, I mean, you know, this country is, 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 you know, is basically- um, the foundation of this country is, is, of course, genocide and slavery. But on top of that, <laughs> which is, uh, on top of that, is this fantastic thing that people from all over the world have come here from different circumstances and different ways and made this nation, made this America. So you're all Americans, and you, but you know your, your parents or your grandparents are all from somewhere else, and that's pretty bloody amazing. And you know and you do it to, you know, you, so you, you being American, you, you make the country. Uh, so these four women from different social and economical backgrounds come together and make this team. And they make this team, and they couldn't do it out, they can't do it without each other. They have to do it together, otherwise, hey, it, it was impossible. Just like what Veronica said, you know, we, we, we can't do it on our own. So they come together to achieve this goal. Um, but I want to start, I don't want to just offer a take, I want to just start with the, the good things about widows. Sure. Um, do you mind what if I are ask, they, Chris? <laughs> let me no, uh, I do answer that question. But I ask you a question. Yes. How familiar are you with Steve McQueen's work? Um, I've seen 12 Years a Slave. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not seen anything else. Got it. I was very excited for this yeah. movie because I loved his three other feature features. Films, and I've seen his like video art shorts like in museums and stuff. So I was very, very excited to see how he would bring that visual sensibility to a genre flick. I was even more interested because I love Gillian Flynn's books. I've read all three of her novels and think they're they're all excellent. And I think Viola Davis's performance in Fences in, I think it was 2016, one of my favorite performances any actor's ever given in a, in a film. Uh, Having said all that. Having said, well, so the good things are, I think that some of the visual style that Steve McQueen brings, particularly when dealing with Viola Davis's feelings of grief over, again, as with all of these, spoiler for literally everything. Uh, spoiler alert. It's if when it's focusing on her reaction to her grief mm-hmm. and the overlap between the present and her memories of the past and the way that they're uh, spinning around each other, those work so well. The, the very end, there's a scene that has some very, very choreographed doubling in the way that it's shot that I that I found visually, which I found, I thought worked very well visually. It was a little bit heavy handed, but on the other hand, it was also coming at the end of the film. So it did seem like a good button and tied into uh, some of the interesting themes. When it was different than conventional heist things, those were the best things about it. And Viola Davis did not disappoint. I thought her part in some ways was underwritten, but she filled those gaps in by uh, like a confidence in her performance. And then actually, I also really liked Elizabeth Debicki, who I'd only seen like in uh, Man from Uncle or something. Um, before we talk a little further, let's play a little clip from the movie. This introduces some of the main characters. We're at the funeral for Viola Davis's husband, who is a master criminal named Harry Rawlings, played by Liam Neeson, and Brian Tyree Henry and Daniel Kaluuya are two criminals observing the funeral proceedings and commenting on Liam Neeson's character having robbed them of a substantial amount of money. Harry Rollins. You never mess with me, I never mess with him. Me in different games. I always have respect. So why do you hit me now? Well, I don't know why. Thinks you're setting your sights on something high, you're getting sloppy. Mrs. Rollins, I'm Jack Mulligan. I had the privilege of working with your husband a couple of times. He was a wonderful man. 
I'm so sorry for your loss. If there's anything I can do, please don't hesitate to ask. I'm not a hard man to find. And God bless you. So I agree with a lot of what you said, Chris. I think the stylishness of the proceedings in terms of the framings of the shots and some of the inventive ways things were filmed kept my attention. But this suffers from the classic overwrought approach of taking a genre subject matter, like a heist film, right? And the subject matter on Linda LaPlante's 1983 novel, which... Uh, very similar to the original BBC version of House of Cards, um, which I thought stayed in a lane of political satire and as such achieved greatness through the devastating send-up of political mores and ambition. Of course, when something like that migrates to American shores and gets in the hands of, it must be said, I'm afraid, playwrights who are writing for television who are apparently used to imbuing those genre pictures with other layers of other higherfalutin stuff that the movies are about. I'm a heist movie guy. So I too was excited. One of the problems I think this movie had was when the trailers came out, for me, it suffered from a little, like, I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. You know, they kind of didn't market the trailer quite like a straight up heist movie mm -hmm. because you have an A-list director, um, you have- a who's who of marquee actors. I don't think I've ever been so stunned at a cast. Yeah. Like the fact, I didn't know Robert Duvall was in this. Like, Me neither. That's a pretty big name. I understand the attraction for all the actors to work with a director like Steve McQueen, who is doing something novel and original. However, in this iteration of it, I think A, uh, like when, when I first saw the trailer, I, it felt like this is a meditation on grieving and loss by a director who I'm already familiar with handling really heavy, hardcore societal themes that can often be difficult to watch. Mm -hmm. Then once I sort of like looked into it a little bit more, I realized like, oh, it's a heist movie that was really laden down with a bunch of other themes that I thought didn't really help the proceedings. I've had, in some ways, the opposite reaction. Uh, I think both of us didn't love this film. I think, I think that's pretty yes. obvious, right? I liked the idea that, that some of those other themes were there because they seemed like good motivating factors. Uh, the class divide as well as the racial divide within Chicago and how everybody is kind of motivated by these things in a way that moves the gears along. I actually liked also that almost every character did have something different about them or an interesting dynamic that they all fit into this building up to the heist itself. Um, but all of that sounded great. But I think ultimately the execution, I thought the way that that they deal, dealt with those themes was alternately both uh, heavy-handed with some very difficult on the ears uh, lines, but then also kind of shallow in the sense yes. that those same, you know, you hear these heavy-handed lines and then they sort of breeze past what should be very difficult. Yeah. Um, either logistical problems, moral problems, feelings. The one feeling that I thought actually was dealt with so well was the grief, the double grief that Viola Davis had, not only losing her husband, but that, that having been informed by having lost her son and that being tied into the racial dynamics of the city. That to me seemed like a the one thing where those things were knitted together well. The city itself for a movie so purposefully set in Chicago Aside from the production design and the sets, which were fantastic, I mean, I think that the the bowling alley, the mm -hmm. the the criminal's lair, her apartment, the store that Michelle Rodriguez runs, all of those locations and those sets were fantastically done in a production design sense. Right. But the city itself, which to hear Steve McQueen talk is a big part of why he wants to make this movie and some of the themes that he wants to cover, isn't a character at all in the way that you would expect. It very much feels like a British production set down in Chicago to mm -hmm. make a movie about Chicagoans in Chicago. I think some of the grief stuff to me was too heavy handed. There's a scene where Viola Davis just screams into a mirror. Mm -hmm. I found her character just so flat and inert. You know, I, I understand the performance, but it almost felt like, again, this is where we're making a heist movie. We're not making a meditation about race and class in America. One of the things that I did after I saw the movie was I went back, because I'm a big, like, Linda LaPlante is responsible for probably my favorite television series of all time. Oh, really? Yes. Prime Suspect. 
I didn't realize that, that was her. Yeah. yeah. So Prime Suspect is also based on a series of novels written by Linda LaPlante. And so I never actually read her novels because I'm just such a fan of the TV series that she's been involved with. But I did want to go and read this first book to kind of see like, well, what was the source material? What aspects of the source material did Steve McQueen kind of keep? Um, and which did he sort of abandon and why? You know, and also like trying to answer for myself, wow, so this one thing was written in like, what, 1983, and there's been at least three BBC series uh, made about it, and a pretty unknown 2002 US TV series starring Mercedes Rule also made about it. About Widows, really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So she made the first show, Widows, mm-hmm. um, and then there was a um, a sequel a few years later. Yeah. And then they made another one a couple years after that, which all followed the story of, spoiler alert, the Harry Rollins character is alive yeah. after we are led to believe he's been killed in an explosion. The end of the first series, he comes back to life, but right. he, he escapes with his life. And the second series for the BBC was about the widow's pursuit of him. And then the third one, which is called She's Out, right. was, I guess, presuming from the title, one of those mafia, every time I get out, they pull me back in. Right. When you see that many versions of something, you're thinking, wow, like the source material must be pretty hot shit to justify this. The interesting take that she had, the original book, was to have three women decide to take on man's work, as it's explained in the book and in this movie, and become the criminals that their husbands were. In the book, there's so many great scenes of the women having to figure out how to do crime stuff. Right. Or even having to do man stuff, fix a car, buy a car. They do a little, Steve McQueen does a little of this. But so little. The little stuff in the book is what makes the book great. Like if you had to figure out how to be a criminal and handle yourself around criminals and around law enforcement, that's what she gets really right in the book. And yeah. I don't know if the BBC series did that because it's it's not available to stream easily. But to me, that's the stuff that's missing from this movie, the minutia of how we're doing it. And instead, we get a really shorthand version of that and kind of a really silly version of it. I mean, when they turn into the criminals in their, in their body armor and their- That part worked surprisingly well because I thought the heist in the beginning and the cutting back and forth between the private lives of the, the women versus the, the heist, I, was, I, I didn't think it's it jarring. was working. Well, it was more that I thought the heist itself for something where like men are about to die, a lot yeah. of bleeding, a lot of gunshots- pretty sort of like flat and yes, boring. Yes. Uh and then the, the the scenes where you sort of get introduced to the to the the widows themselves are I don't know, I guess I, I just I Yeah, the characterizations aren't there. Stuck. The, the characterizations stuck. aren't there. It's too long. I mean, god, so many things are just too long nowadays. I'm sorry. It's the same thing with um what was the movie we talked about? Uh, I guess it's the Monkey Shines episode where Ebert said- Don't some, you dare say that there's anything Somewhere wrong in that <laughs> two-hour running time, there's a, there's a brilliant 90-minute yeah. thriller. Um, I don't think somewhere in this two-hour-plus running time, there's a brilliant anything. But I think- um, There are a lot of brilliant pieces. There are a lot of brilliant pieces. That are just not right. So jumping into the full cast and crew, um, first of all, and you mentioned it, and I want to underscore this, Elizabeth Debicki- who I'd never seen before, blown away. I mean, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen this movie, by the time you're done listening to this, you probably think, why the hell would I bother seeing this movie? But see this movie for Elizabeth Debicki's performance, for Cynthia Erivo's performance. Yeah, she also- um, For Jackie Weaver, for a lot of the cast members. I like Jackie Weaver, she was I do too, that's why I was a little bit like, oh. Well, let's just talk about Elizabeth Debicki. You're not one of my aunts. Elizabeth Debicki, were you familiar with her? Like I said, only from uh, The Man From Uncle, with uh, (laughs) the- What? Well, it's just, I mean, that is why, would you, film, why would you have seen The Man from Uncle? Man, I don't know. This is so weird about you. can be fun. I'm sure, I mean, I do remember specifically, I had a friend who was like, you got to see this, and like dragged me, and I went uh And was she him. good? Is she? She's fine, but yeah. it really was not much of a role. She's stunning to look at. She is She's beautiful. Not only just beautiful, but also so long and willowy to the point of almost being cartoonish. I mean, some of the scenes show her character has a- relationship with uh, Lucas Haas's second appearance in the podcast. Uh, remind me what was the first one? I can't remember. But he was just in a movie that we watched two movies ago. Oh, Buster Scruggs. Who was he in Buster Scruggs in? Isn't that the one that he's in? Shoot. It was First Man that Lucas Haas was in. Oh, sorry. First Man, yes. Which, by the way, we'll get to this later, was largely snubbed in today's uh, 
Golden Globe nominations, but Good. we'll talk about that later. Um, despite your <laughs> passive aggressive or just flat out aggressive. That's what I'd say. Like, it's not passive aggressive about it. Flat out aggressive. So Elizabeth Debicki, it's funny that she's in this movie with Carrie Coon. We've talked about this before that when you see actors that you don't know in a film and and they make you stop and say, who is that? Yeah. Um, I had that experience with Carrie Coon in the other Gillian Flynn movie, Gone, Gone Girl, Girl, where she played Ben Affleck's sister. And that was a role where she was so naturalistic and so just stood out and, and so unique that I had that experience where I said, who is that? And became an immediate fan. Um, Elizabeth Debicki, same thing in this movie. I mean- Really alone amongst the widows, I thought she delivered a really layered, nuanced performance that felt like a real person. Viola Davis felt too much like a caricature of grief for me and was too impenetrable to kind of allow me to get into what was going on with her. See, for, to me, that impenetrability, I thought, had as much to do with the interesting class divide that was in there as well, which was different than the racial divide and the overlap between them. Yeah. You know, and- Maybe. You know, again, I, I'm sort of, I just sort of like her. And like I said, I wish some of it was justified. Like she comes and like, almost like mid-sentence is like, we're telling telling these women about the husband. Makes no choices like, all right, you should do this because, because you would be better suited to this. She sort of almost arbitrarily hands things out like a woman who's, who is used to being weighted on hand and foot and has not done a lot of like thinking. Except I was like, she seemed so committed to the performance. I was like, maybe that's a thematic choice. Let's play another clip from the movie that that backs up what you're talking about. This is the scene. We have the three widows and they need a driver because the fourth member of the widow, what's the, what's the club? What's Gang. the four, what's the four version of a triumvirate? Uh, a quartet? Yes. <laughs> the fourth member of the widow quartet has not chosen to participate for reasons which become clear. So in this scene, Michelle Rodriguez has brought her babysitter, who she found on Sitter City, uh, to the party as a prospective driver. Solved our problem. What's this? This is Belle. She's fast, she's smart, and she can drive. Come on, we can't do this, the three of us. We need a driver. This is not your place. Please ask her to leave. I'm standing here. You can talk to me. I don't know you. You don't have to. I'm happy to leave right now. Wait, we need a driver. Your girl's happy to split your cut? Split our cut? It's equal or nothing. You vouch for her? I don't require a vouch. You're gonna need another gun. I got my own. You need to watch how you talk to me. If you're in, we need to get you started right away. Full Cast and Crew is brought to you by the award-winning comedy series Philly Court. It's like a fake Judge Judy, but if way more of the cases involved Percocet and illegal fireworks. Philly Court Season 2, premiering now on Facebook. Just like and follow Chuckler Comedy on Facebook for the latest episodes. Philly Court did not actually win any awards, my dude, but the guys in Vinny's called it awesome, except for Brian Welsh, who's a fucking dumbass anyways, and I'm going to beat his ass for stealing my twisted tees. Um, so anyway, I, I, Elizabeth Debicki... I you mean, had also mentioned. I don't know if she's actually six foot eight in real life, but in this movie, compared to Lucas Haas, <laughs> she feels like she's six foot eight. Um, I found her really compelling and brilliant. Like you, I'm a big fan of Brian Tyree Henry. He on Atlanta, he's amazing. Yeah. but he's also an actor who can do so many other things. Like no, he's you know, so he's versatile. a stage guy. He's a stage guy. I saw him in. Um with Captain America, what's it, uh, Lobby Hero. Oh, Lobby Hero. Stage. I always wanted to see that. He was fantastic. Yeah. He was really fantastic. But he kind of made his name uh, in Book of Mormon, that he's like oh, a really? big musical guy. Oh, I didn't know that. Which from seeing it, like, yeah. <laughs> that was the last thing that I expe sure. expected. Uh, and also with this, like he has such gravitas that I would not expect that from yeah, he's uh, wasted somebody in, this, in a musical. He's wasted in this movie to me. You know, and what's funny is when I read the, the source material, the gangster character in the Linda LaPlante book is overtly gay. And that's part of the storyline that they play with in the book. And it didn't really occur to me. I think there's one passing reference to Brian Tyree Henry's character being gay in this movie. Oh, that was a pretty uh, subtle reference. There's, what was there's, it? there's a conversation between uh, either Colin Farrell and his father, played by Robert Duvall, or it's two police officers. Mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a very fleeting reference to uh, the character being gay, but they don't mm. really get into it at all. Yeah. And then actually, if you think about the scene where Brian Tyree Henry visits the pastor and he mm -hmm. has his aide with him, 
I believe that character is meant to sort of portray someone who might be a romantic partner of Brian Tyree Henry's character, Maybe. but it's very underplayed. It's very, it's very yeah. underplayed. So to have an actor like Brian Tyree Henry and really have him, he he doesn't have any fireworks. He doesn't have any, he doesn't bring anything other than what the quickest sketch would give you of someone motivated to transform from a drug lord to an alderman, which mm-hmm. is the the journey that we're led to believe he's on here. And that's a pretty interesting transformation, but this movie doesn't really find time in its two-hour-plus running time to give us anything new and original about right, that. Right, to me, I mean, it's just enough to set up that here's somebody who is, it becomes sort of the motivation for him, the desperation, because the money that is stolen in the beginning belongs to him. He uh, is worried about not being able to win the election because he does, doesn't have the money. Um, so to me, it was, you know, he was such a, like that was kind of enough for me because he really, it was not about him, that he was just sort of off to the side. And he did enough to add that level of threat and desperation sort of in the background that they were playing against. Uh, you know, I'm not making excuses or apologies for it, but I, but it didn't bother me. What bothered me more actually was uh, Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya's Daniel Kaluuya. character. Another um, one note character. And also like a note, like a pretty Cliche. Oh, you mean like I'm learning Spanish and listening to podcasts and reading books, but I'm also a homicidal killer. It's the the hom the the sort of homicidal killer thing. Like I've seen so many like yeah. cool like what are you gonna do? What are you gonna, yeah. and then shoot somebody out of I'm nowhere? Stab you in a cool way. And it gets a little like eh. again a great actor who I want to see do something a little different. And in a movie where I'm where I'm set up and led to believe, hey, we're going to get into like race in America and political realities and street realities. Um, and instead to be given sort of, you know, like a very one-dimensional version of them. And then to have people like freaking Robert Duvall. <laughs> and it's like, it, it, this could be a Saturday Night Live sketch about Robert Duvall in a lot of Robert Duvall movies, yeah. right? It's got the- the sputtering and the stuttering and the the breathing and the, you know, the histrionic anger followed by whispering quietness. It's just, what are we doing here? I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, it's just so unbelievable and doesn't really contribute anything. I was really confused the whole movie by Colin, Colin Farrell's character. Yeah. He's, I don't know why this happened, but it's at alternate times, I you're almost led to believe like, He's a good guy trying to do good things, in, or he's a but political then he's pragmatist. Ultra corrupt, but yeah. then he's ultra corrupt, and he's all over the place. And it's you know it's it's good to have those contradictions, and sometimes sure. they they but a contradiction they, sometimes is not they a character lead, make. Well, as I was say, sometimes that leads to dramatic tension in a character. Other times, it does just feel diffuse. Here's another Chicago thing that bothered me. Well, before we get into Chicago, just one last thing about a performance that is the exact opposite of all of the negative things we have said was Cynthia Erivo. Cynthia Erivo was fucking great. Not only was she great, but that to me was doing exactly what you said in terms of having her life as a single mother, all of those elements of her uh, having to run from job to job in order to make ends meet, living in the projects, taking the bus, like being both a sitter and working at the hair salon. There was so much going on, and that to me seemed very integral to her character and seemed like something different and more interesting than than uh, some of the other characters. Anyway, the other Chicago thing was um, the scene with Colin Farrell on the boat. There's a scene where Colin Farrell <laughs> and Liam Neeson are on a boat on Lake Michigan. Yeah. And I was like, is that even something that Chicagoans do? Like, let's go out on the boat. And they're on this like yacht on Lake Michigan off the shoreline of the coast of Chicago. Yeah. Chicago, it has a certain set of, I'm not going to use the word that Rebecca doesn't want us to use. Yeah. Like Chicago, it has a set of assumptions. It even has a set of cliches, which would have been frankly welcome. Hey, this is Matt, the engineer. If we're talking about Chicago and we're talking about cliches, we got to talk about Chicago blues. Chicago is home to some of the most influential blues artists like Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Willie Dixon. These were some of the most influential artists on a lot of the classic rock era musicians and gods such as Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, even Jimi Hendrix. The Stones. But one of the cliches about Chicago is not being on my yacht. So it's just one of those strange choices where it's sort of like, why are we on a boat? Well, I'll tell you. I mean, I guess the only reason we're on a boat is because Liam Neeson's character is like deep underground because he's supposed to be dead. Well, and I think they also, they're they're having, 
again, spoiler for 2018, they're having an illegal conversation, but where they're both laying it on the table right. about all the illegal stuff. So you're far away from where anybody could hear. I guess, but it's Chicago. Do it in a speakeasy or, you know, in a, a speakeasy, that is the exact opposite of being far away from everybody <laughs> here. And, you know, the, on Lake Michigan, there are like docks and stuff of people who have their sure. nice boat. What do okay. you mean, Sure. I guess. Um, I love Jackie Weaver. I thought Jackie Weaver, who plays uh, Elizabeth Debicki's mom, psycho mom, I thought she was doing a great turn in the Diane Ladd slash wild at heart mode. I loved her, and I loved her also in The Disaster Artist, which she was in, if you saw that. I did see this. I'm trying to remember. Who was she in The Disaster? Oh, was uh, she the mom who has cancer? Yes. <laughs> yes. She was so funny. Um, you didn't like her in this? It seemed caricatured, and she, like I will say her- Colin Farrell, Liam Neeson, uh, Daniel Kaluuya uh, seemed like they're like, I'm doing one take of everything. <laughs> this, it seemed almost, well, actually, it seemed like very shallow, to broad that point, choices. In the DGA podcast, Steve McQueen says in an offhand moment there that his style of directing is, I don't do a shot list. I just get in the room and we figure it out. So I wonder if in a way, some of that lack of specific characterization ends up harming the process because you don't get those really finely wrought moments that really specifically describe. Could the be. actors that are delivering are the ones that are really in a pretty deep character. The thing about Chicago, and he talks about this in that podcast as well, you know, Chicago is a city where that yes. is very, seg cheek <laughs> it by is jowl. a city. Segregated, there, cheek by jowl, rich, poor. It has very, but I was going to say it has very sort of definitely defined ethnic neighborhoods, one mm -hmm. against the other. And, the, and that ethnic, like that's such a part of Chicago's identity. And I thought Jackie Weaver played something that did not, again, you know, maybe it's because I'm Polish and the first thing that, you know, and they were Polish and I reckon it, it oh, didn't- Oh, so didn't Polish it up enough for you? It seemed like a Polish joke as opposed to well, like mom? an actual- the Yeah. Mom? Well, what's the as joke? As opposed to an Irish char character. What's it seemed like a caricature of somebody. Oh, like yeah. the big hair and stuff, I, I get all that. Like that's, right. that's fine. But her actual, the the meanness and the kind of cruelty and the, the way that she was controlling and, and cutting her daughter off, to me, seemed like a stock a stock character that was put in this role. Man, look, today the Golden Globe nominations came out. It's the Golden Globes. I realize it's a fucking joke and it doesn't, <laughs> it's ridiculous. However, for Elizabeth Debicki not to get nominated uh, for this is crazy. It's crazy because- she does a lot of stuff in this movie that is really impressive. Yeah. And it's like a, I don't know if it's a star making role, but it's certainly a, um, it's certainly a career making role to me. I mean, it's, 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 it's a role where people are going to say, um, get me Elizabeth Debicki. Maybe. I hope so. I hope so. I hope, so. I hope, so. I hope her, for her that. sake, for, for the American film industry. And for sake. Cynthia Erivo too. I mean, yeah. she, she's so interesting and. Uh, Though I did not realize that she has already been in, uh, she also is a musical theater person, that she had been in The Color Purple on Broadway. Oh, right. There was a revival. Yeah. And I had heard that there was this British woman who was excellent, who was a, uh, but I hadn't made the connection until researching for this, that that was her. And, I, and yeah, she was great. Other sort of wasted uh, actors, I mean, to have Carrie Coon in a movie, and I think she only had like two lines. And yeah, she's two made, scenes. You know, here's another funny thing. So you read about like, A, the book written by a woman is- really does tackle feminist themes and 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 puts women in juxtaposition to a world of men that's cruel and violent and shows that they both can bend that world to their will to succeed in that world, but also remain above it and retain their humanity. In this version of the movie, I found myself asking in a lot of these scenes between the female characters, would this even pass the Bechdel test? Hi, everybody. This is Chris doing some more aftermarket recording to try and make some points we feel didn't get their due during the pod. The first is, uh, for those of you who don't know, the Bechdel test is, according to Wikipedia, a measure of the representation of women in fiction. It asks whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. It's named after the cartoonist Alison Bechdel, who is most famous for the book Fun Home, as well as the newspaper strip Dykes to Watch Out For. Like, most of the time, 
sometimes when the women characters are having a discussion, they're talking about one of the male characters. Hmm. It's pretty rare that they're not having a conversation about a man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or about getting a man or a dead. You know, it's just it's just one of those funny things about a movie that's supposed to be about empowerment and um, – and and these things where it's though it's it, the, it's defense. I don't know if it's so much about empowerment so well, it's much certainly as certainly trying to be. Well, I think it's not trying to be about empowerment so much as being about oppression and the oppressive forces that are surrounding these women, and they're trying to fight back against it. And so yeah, but they're, I, you're presented with them as badasses that, like, in the end, she blows him away, and she, but they grow to being that. I think that you know that's to me what the arc sh- is and should have been, and that's why again the. Uh, the sort of more self-conscious lines that were sort of peppering it throughout it took it away because it it, it smoothed that arc into more of a plane. Mm. Um, Man, talk about uh, an excess of riches to be able to have all these fantastic actors and and just not really have the engine at the heart of it to sort of move it forward. But yeah. having said all that, you know, I, 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 there's enough to recommend people to see it. Like, yeah. I, oh, I yeah. actually think people should see the movie because- a, there are a couple great performances in it, and there are some great scenes. There's some great dialogue. I didn't buy the central relationship between Liam Neeson and Viola Davis. It, that it never had. It's sort of like being presented this thing is this way. This relationship was so intense. This bond was so intense. But really, nothing to there, no nothing showed you that. You're just told that's the way it was, sort of, but well, the actors weren't really backing that up in well, their performance. you know, listen, certainly Liam Neeson was not. And listen, <laughs> Liam, if you should hear this, please don't find me. Love please you, don't Liam. use those special skills that you supposedly have yeah. from the movie Taken. Um, no, I thought he, I think if he did not, spoiler, survive and it yeah. didn't come back in the end, the fact that it would be sort of that um, ill-defined would have made it live in her memory. And so she, and it would be more about the grief and her remembering, you know, of course you remember somebody once they're mm-hmm. gone in a certain way that would have been, in, but that you have that then contrasted with him once, once he comes back. All of a sudden he's like a deranged madman. Yeah. Which well, again, it's I get part of a turn. It could, and again, it's, it could have been an interesting thing to be like, Oh, yeah. I'm disappointed. But there was sort of so much, for, yeah. so much in there that, that it did not um, to me. Yeah. I agree with you that it, that it didn't, it didn't work. But again, I placed that um, on there being almost too much that was going on and, the, and none of it was handled with as much delicacy yeah. as, as as perhaps it should have, except for the the grief and the connection of, of Marcus's death. Two scenes that I did really like a lot. Um, there's a long speech by Colin Farrell's character in the backseat of a town car as he's being driven from the black community to his and his father, Robert Duvall's residence in the more affluent white community. And the speech is both him uh, taking off the mask and really just letting it vent about how he really thinks and feels about both the the ward that he's trying to become alderman uh-huh. of, uh-huh. black people, politics in general, uh, the whole thing. And then his, I don't know who that character is, his girlfriend, his female no, sidekick, like, his no, campaign like, uh, manager, like uh, whoever she is. identified, but she's like the- Spokesperson. Spokesperson. Um, She sort of tells him to suck it up and man up and just get with the program and stop, quit your bitching, quit your whining. But McQueen films the whole scene, which is a very revelatory scene for the character of Colin Farrell. He's he's burying his soul in a way that we have seen him very carefully behind the mask of the the politician and the campaigner. And also, even when we've seen him not in public, we've seen him in scenes with uh, Brian Tyree Henry and Daniel Kaluuya, where he's the manipulator and he's he's like the backroom dealer, but even that is a mask. And then this scene in the car is the mask coming off, but we never see him because it's shot only from the exterior of the car and all we see is the darkened interior of the car. And what I liked about the scene was at the end of this kind of race rant that he goes on, you only gradually at the end of the scene become aware that his driver is a black man. I liked that scene. I thought it was inventively staged and I thought it handled what it was trying to do really well. Uh, but I see that from the look on your face, you didn't feel You know, I know right? I've read that a lot and I have to admit when I was watching it, I was like, were you really that pressed for time that you couldn't reshoot this? Because uh, I think the angle, to me, the idea is great, but the actual angle of the sort of shot, I didn't actually get a sense of the blighted community that they were going through in the background. 
And uh, nor did I get a sense until he got out of the car of the community that they were in. Like, I just, I thought it was an idea that was a good idea that was not particularly well executed. Uh, and well, I guess to my mind, you know, he had already let the mask slip before getting into the car. So this seemed like kind of an add-on to that in a way that didn't illuminate anything for me than what I sort of would assume about cynical politicians anyway. If he hadn't been sort of so badgered by that um, reporter before getting yeah. in the car. Which was and, a ridiculous scene, by the way. Because it, because it the- unrealistic. There were so many- other ways that we found yeah. out about the threats of the potential, sure. like the stress was already there. Why have him begin to lose it at that point? Because it undercut the impact of exactly what you had said of, of him finally having a private moment. The other scene I really liked was when Viola Davis comes to visit Carrie Coon's home. Um, and we kind of don't really know why Carrie Coon's character isn't part of the initial gathering of the remaining widows after all the husbands have been killed. We know that she has a young baby and there's a, there's a, in her first scene in the movie, which is that intercut scene with the heist gone wrong where all the guys die, and then we're shown a little bit of the home lives of the various right. soon-to-be widows. I did like the way in her scene, her husband goes to kind of touch her or kiss her goodbye, and she sort of recoils a little bit. And you kind of don't know why, because mm -hmm. just prior to that, I think we saw Elizabeth Debicki's husband, played by John Bernthal, smack the hell out of her. And then here's a husband kind of going in for like an affectionate goodbye and she sort of recoils and we never know why until uh, this right. scene where Viola Davis and the ridiculous dog, by the way, <laughs> the dog, which is in the book. So, okay, I get it. But like I laughed out loud and other people in the theater laughed out loud at the scene at the end when the stakes are getting really high and she's like walking around with this puffy blow dried white dog. <laughs> it's just like it tipped over into character, but they did a really cool reveal, which I actually did not see coming because yeah. I, I hadn't read the source material first. So when the dog enters the apartment and sort of like runs down a hallway and starts barking at a door, it never occurred to me in my mind that behind the door, it Liam Neeson occurred. was alive. Not being a dog person, it wouldn't occur to me mm -hmm. either. But luckily I had somebody uh, a row or two behind yelling, that dog's been there before. <laughs> oh, see, I didn't think the dog had been there. Well, why would the dog be there? It's her dog. Harry, no, the dog smells him. That's no, the point. I, I get that. Yeah. But this is what the person yelled, which got me thinking like, oh, oh does, does he mean that like the husband brought the here's dog how, over? Here's how two, And I so I kind of was figuring that out, though, as you say, right. I didn't even get what was coming when she finds his flask, which we also see in the very first scene of the movie. She pours him a shot in the shower and he's sort of deep in thought in the shower. And now we know why. She finds his flask on a table outside the door where the dog is barking. Even when she was sort of looking at the flask, I just thought like, oh, he was having an affair with Carrie Coon's character. Uh, it never occurred to me that he was behind the door, but she doesn't open the door. Right. I thought that was really well done because it, it, it played with my expectations. It surprised me. And then it didn't pay off in the expected way, which would be, you're going to open the fucking door and find out what's going on. But, she knows. But, but it that still felt movie, realistic. Like, felt very realistic. If I were in a situation, I also probably wouldn't have opened the door. Well, she's yeah. also now playing an endgame, which is- She's, it's mm. dawning on her what has occurred. And in order to come out on top of this betrayal now, to an additional betrayal, her hand she be has shown. to not let her hand be shown. Right. I thought that was done very, very well. That's a good point, yeah. And, and there were so many things in uh, the movie that hinted at a really cool, unique take on what can be a very tired genre, but unfortunately didn't really come together. I think that's pretty much all the cast notes I have. I thought Lucas Haas was great again in mm -hmm. an unexpected role. Um, I loved Matt Walsh's one scene as the compromised CEO of an alarm company um, who th drives by and throws, throws the, the alarm notes. codes. I actually did like also when they were using the the codes on the safe and it was, and it was upside down. Yeah. That was a pretty good touch too. Like that's what I'm saying. I was so disappointed that there were so many cool, funny things. And in the book too, the book is really about the minutia of having to figure out how to pull off a heist. Yeah. It uses the construct of these women having to figure all this out in order to kind of really get into the minutia. Right. Here, nothing they no. did was actually hard. No. And then all of a sudden they're moving like a took tactical all special away. ops unit yeah. throughout the house when they pull off the heist. I mean, come on. Full cast and crew is brought to you by Behemoth from Monkey Brain Comics. Behemoth is the dirty dozen meets the fly with a little Spider-Man thrown in. Kids are turning into monsters, and the government steps in to keep things quiet. Some are never heard from again, but others are forced on suicide missions on behalf of a world that hates them, as part of Project Behemoth. 
Find it on monkeybraincomics.com or Comixology today. Moving on, Chris. Uh, just a brief note on the Golden Globe nominations, which came out today. Yes. Now, of course, the Golden Globes is really like the sorting hat of award <laughs> season. If, if the Hollywood foreign press has any credibility left, which I don't think it actually does, but I mean, do you remember when a completely made-up Drew Barrymore interview appeared in an in-flight magazine? Did you hear this story? <laughs> no. Over the summer, someone on Twitter noticed that there was an in-flight magazine, and it had a interview conducted by Ada Takala O'Reilly, who was previously the president of the Hollywood former foreign press. And if you if you read any of these um, these quotes from this interview, um, you know that it's completely made up. Like yeah. the, the syntax is so garbled that it's clear that they never interviewed Drew Barrymore. And instead of just sort of acknowledging it, this woman, former president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, uh, defended herself in a tweet in which she misspelled Drew Barrymore's name. She eventually had to admit she made the whole thing up. Uh, and that's, that's the Hollywood Foreign Press. The article that Jason is referring to was an, in quotes, interview with Drew Barrymore in the Egypt Air in-flight magazine Horus. Uh, <laughs> the article starts with... Um, Despite being unstable in her relationships most of her life, despite the several unsuccessful marriages, and despite the busy life of stardom that dominated her life for several years, the beautiful American Hollywood actress Drew Barrymore has recently decided to temporary, sick, take an unlimited vacation to play her most crucial role as a mother. The article uh, also says, it is known that Barrymore has had almost 17 relationships, engagements, and marriages. And then uh, it refers to the work of unnamed psychologists who believe that her, quote, behavior is only natural since she lacked the male role model in her life after her parents' divorce when she was only nine years. Ever since that time, she has been subconsciously seeking attention and care from a male figure. But unfortunately, things do not always go as planned, and she has not yet succeeded in any relationship for various reasons. Uh, here's a quote supposedly from Barrymore. I cannot deny that women made a great achievement over the past century. There is significant progress recorded by people who study women's status throughout history. This is naturally reflected on women in the West who will not be satisfied unless they gain the rights they deserve to the society. Another quote supposedly from Barrymore. I feel overwhelmed when someone tells me that I have regained my image and managed to lose that extra weight, especially that I felt depressed due to the significant increase in my weight after delivering Frankie. Uh, she also supposedly said, however, I find this a great opportunity to encourage every woman who is overweight to work on regaining her beauty and body, especially that it is not as hard as one may think. I barely watch these award shows anymore. However, look, I'm is, never nominated, so what do yeah, I? Yeah, so you don't care. It is an indication of which films are likely to be players in the forthcoming Oscar season, which after today's episode, today is Thursday, December something. These are the movies that seem to enter into the discussion. Vice topped the film category with six nominations. The Favorite, Green Book, and A Star Is Born all tied for the second most nominations with five each. And those include nods for Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, Mahershala Ali, Viggo Mortensen, Bradley Cooper, and Lady Gaga. The best picture, best motion picture drama category is um, Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, If Beale Street Could Talk, mm. and A Star Is Born. But you have to include so, the music and comedy ones in the best picture because that's the way the globe splits it out. Oh, that's true. What are the musical and comedy category films? Crazy Rich Asians, okay. The Favorite, Green Book, Mary Poppins Returns, and Vice. Widows was one of the conspicuous snubs at this year's Golden Globes nominations, as pointed out in the New York Times' Carpetbagger column, where they wrote, quote, The director Steve McQueen's last film, 12 Years a Slave, 2013, took the Golden Globe for best drama, but McQueen's new heist thriller was totally shut out on Thursday. Widows received not a single nomination. After a wan box office take, this may spell doom for the movie's award season chances. Um, I'm not going to get too deep into this right now because we're going to be recording a podcast about this movie true, in true. coming weeks. However, I will say that last night I was 
lucky enough to attend a pre-release screening of Mary Poppins Returns. I had never seen the original Mary Poppins, which is so, weird. Which I, so I'm not. Yeah, I know. So um, you can <laughs> you can, en- talk, you can but... enjoy this one moment where I haven't seen something. Have you seen Have you seen the original Mary Poppins? Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm not a monster. Um, so. For me, uh, this was, I was going in cold and I'm going to tell you, Chris, when this movie comes out, this is going to be a cultural phenomena. This is not going to just be a successful film. This is going to be something that certainly is going to be a part of every parent's life for the Mm -hmm. foreseeable future. Those of us with children will be seeing this movie an interminable amount of times. The good news is I will happily sit through this film as many times as my daughter wants to watch it. And I probably will force her to sit through it many, many times that I want to watch it. It's a brilliant, brilliant movie, well-deserving of the nomination. Now, I also have a little errata. Is that how you say, like, stuff that you got wrong? Ero- oh, oh, oh. Are you Erotum? Say erotic. Uh, no, 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 no. You're thinking no, of I don't want to make a different word. Errata? Sure. Is that a word? Maybe. I know. I looked it up. You did? Yeah. And? And I forget. I forget, well, <laughs> I forget you, what I found out. <laughs> okay. I was listening to our Monkey Shines episode, and as the loyal listener of the podcast will will perhaps have sussed out, from time to time, we put forth podcasts that are part of the Chuckler Podcast Network, right. which may not be entirely grounded in truth and reality. They might be clever jokes or takes on popular culture, let's say. One of them, last week, uh, or however many weeks it was that we released Monkey Shines. In fact, actually, two minutes ago. We, we just it. went up. Um, For those of you who are listening to this recording live, uh, that's very impressive. That's weird. And but we now go download go Monkey down. Shines. At the end of the Sibilance parody, which worked quite well because of your own... Um, Lack of Sibilance? No, you have a Sibilance thing. What? Yeah, you lisp a little. What? You do. What? This is shocking to me. No, it's not shocking to you. What? Seriously? Are you being serious right now? Yeah. No, you do have a little bit of a lisp. You speak with a little bit of a lisp. Really? Hey, so this is Matt, the engineer again. So I'm going to have to disagree with Jason on this. Sibilance is that unpleasant upper frequency kind of sounds that can come across as really harsh. In professional audio, we have a device that's kind of like a volume control just for that specific frequency area. And I don't use that on Chris because I don't feel that he needs it. So I'm going to go with Chris on this one. Well, now you're conscious. No, I can see you doing it with your lips. You're consciously not doing it. There's no S in really. Ah, see? Well, that time, yes, I, I'm even more confident about being yes. crisper. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just saying it's a thing. So it's, it's even not more, a thing. It's even more funny that you botched. Those who listen to the podcast know that Chris is not. He'll say, "I'm not really into music." Yeah. Found it so clearly, the British band Stereophonics means nothing to Chris. Do you remember how you read the term Stereophics? Yes. Yeah. And new music from the band. Stereophics. I just laughed out loud on the street. Unless that was like a super meta take. Thing. Nah, no, I, there was part of me that did think like I should look this up, and uh, <laughs> and then and then I did. And then the part of you that thought, ah, <laughs> fuck it. In my defense, there was a typo in the copy. It read stereophics. Okay, and then um, do you have any other errata? Sure. I think that's oh, also isn't that also the episode where the subject came up of how many countries there are in the world. Yeah. And I did say with confidence, two hundred ten. Uh, we regret the error. I guess the answer is 185, though that I haven't been watching the news today, so say, it might have you, changed. When you say we regret the error, Chris, I think well, are you happy with the error? Do you, do no, you no, like I, having our credibility No, I just question? would like you to take sole ownership of the error. I, but I, yes, it was my error, but we regret the error. Okay. And I have another. Do you have rants and raves this week? Sure. Well, I have one rave. Which, you, which I will do right now if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, please. So you may have noticed in the podcasting studio, Chris, I have these two boxes that were delivered. Yes. Um, and I don't know if you can see the from address. This box <laughs> is from Lance Henriksen, the actor Lance Henriksen, subject of our Pumpkinhead pumpkin episode, our, our Halloween spectacular. That's right. So Lance Henriksen. Um, and you are uh, sharing a correspondence? <laughs> I am sharing correspondence with Lance Henriksen. He's sending me packages in the mail. And what I'm doing right now I, you, you guys probably know that like unboxing videos are one of the most popular things on YouTube. There's an article yesterday about a seven-year-old kid who makes $22 million a year. Let's just say I hope I live long enough to watch the lawsuit <laughs> that will happen between him and his parents. However, this is the first ever audio unboxing video. Yeah, okay? we think this trend will be just as- I am now starting a new thing. I am now taking, uh, Chris, you can describe what I'm He what is I'm actually taking something out of the box. Yeah. The box is brown cardboard. And what is uh, this that I have here? It's foamy. In fact, oh, we could probably use that for soundproofing. Oh, that's true. Foamy yes. stuff. 
Well, Chris, I don't know if you know this. Lance Henriksen, um, in addition to the very interesting synopsis of his life that you gave on the Pumpkinhead podcast, where he was a longshoreman, he spent time at sea, he had all these, he was a painter, painter, artist. Well, in preparing for that episode, I saw a very interesting thing, which is that Lance Henriksen is a potter, and he makes beautiful handmade pottery. And what is in this foam Boxing is a plate made for you by, by Lance, Lance Henderson. Yes. Now, you may notice there are two of these boxes. Okay, now, Chris. It's true. I can look at this as a second, uh, right second brown box. I have another brown box, which is also from Lance also Henriksen. Also from Lance Henriksen. I'm opening the box. The man who played Frank Black on Millennium. That's right. Um, and you can find Lance's pottery online if you just Google okay, Lance see what it's pottery. Um, I think it's Bad Mutt Clay. Yeah, it goes by Bad Mutt Clay. Now, so what happened was I ordered, I thought it would be a nice surprise for you, Chris, to order you. This is the one that I ordered for you, okay? Um, oh, so I'm going to hand that to you. That's you your, so much. I wanted to get you that to commemorate both the launch of our podcast and the, um, the fun that I have recording these podcasts with you and also... I know you're a big Lance Henriksen fan, and I think that would be a, a, an interesting memento for you to have. Absolutely. Oh, so, Jason, I'm really touched. Well, thank I'm you. really moved. I'm not good with. Um, yeah, I'll, try, I'll, cut the, I'll cut that out. So, um, so I ordered it, and then like a couple of weeks went by, and I get an email from someone who works for Lance Henriksen who said, "Hey, Jason, really sorry for the delay. Just wanted to let you know, uh, Lance fired the plate, and it's going to be coming in the mail to you. You know, please reach out when you get it." So a couple days ago, I get these two boxes. Uh-huh. And I'm sort of confused because I'm like, shit, did I, you know, you know, sometimes you go on Amazon, like you order two or three of something by accident and they show up at your house. I mean, I've heard that people do those things. Well, that I, to us I don't. So anyway, I get these two boxes. I open the first box and underneath this plate, which is the second plate, um, there's this envelope, which you can describe for the listeners. Uh, it's a, I think what, like five by eight, yeah. um, manila envelope, manila envelope. Has my name written on it in Sharpie. So anyway, I'm opening the envelope and inside the envelope, there is a handwritten note from Lance Henriksen, which says, Jason, the second platter is my apology. Sincerely, Lance. Thank you. And what I realized was Class that Lance, act. which... So unnecessarily, like I didn't even, I was not, I was not upset or perturbed. I yeah. just thought this is a, this is like something handmade that takes time yeah. and it'll get here when it gets here. But instead now we both get a Lance Henriksen. That's fantastic. Um, so that's just a little follow-up. And what we'll do is um, we'll take a picture of these and put them up on our Instagram account. On the gram. On the gram. As and the on said. the, on the book. So anyway. Facebook. My rant is for Lance Henriksen being- Rave. The, rave. Oh, sorry, yes. The, <laughs> sorry. Okay. My rant is, that jerk only sent me two plates. Two plates. <laughs> uh, no, my rave is Lance Henriksen, class act and fascinating potter. Um, and these are beautiful And they really platters. are nice. They're, They're very lovely. Nice. And I'm glad that you- uh, enjoy. I don't know. Are you going to eat food off your platter, or are you going to or are you going to treat it as a decorative talisman? I guess I have to decide. Um, obviously, like if I should be performing some kind of blood ritual, this would True. be great. Yeah. But I just don't know, you know, how you clean. Uh, so I'll, I'll research. You'll research. Okay. Um, oh, but that's my only awesome. rave. I had a rant and a rave prepared until you sent me a link to an article, which. Uh, Cause you to rant further? Well, more like, does it make my rant even more of a rant or does it turn into a rave? Oh, so interesting. The first, is, the first is just the regular rave is for another podcast. What? Uh, this, Chris, yeah. you can't praise another podcast on our podcast. Well, Can I figure you? maybe they will, uh, maybe they'll return the favor. This oh. is a WBUR and the Boston Globe produced a sort of miniseries called Last Scene about the uh, art heist at the Gardner Museum oh, okay. in yeah. 1990. It's great. Like, you know, this is, I think, an eight or 10 part thing. And they go, you know, pod, there are a lot of podcasts now like this where you take an interesting subject and sort of do draw it out and find it from different angles. And they do have some excellent interviews. I like art very much. So it's sort of just interesting to hear about it. Uh, their take on sort of the art heist as a thing and to then see the contrast between that and the kinds of people. You don't get a lot of actual David Niven type with thin mm -hmm. mustache cat burglars. No, they're, they're, 
They're criminals. They're criminals. They're sausage-fingered thugs who- Or uh, the widows of (laughs) sausage-fingered thugs. Well, that could be widows too. You never know. Widows through, the gardener. This is a really, it's an excellent podcast about what I think is a really interesting story. Well, okay. Uh, I mean, as far as like promoting a podcast (laughs) on, yeah. Hey, WBOR, come on. I did you a solid, you do me a solid. So like when we put it up on Twitter, are you going to like, are you going to, are you going to reference them and say, Hey, WBR gave you a shout out. Like do Maybe. something. Uh, yeah. yeah. Something like that. Some, some sort of ransom. Some sort of, okay. So that's one. That's, the a, other, rave. that's a rave. That's the rave. My rant is about movie pass, which <laughs> I have been a member of since last March. And boy, do I make apologies for them every time their service has gotten so bad that there is like a 15 minute window every morning where you may be able to pick (laughs) some film, one out of three, maybe you can get a seat for in New York. But then once that window is closed, there's literally no ticket to get. It's so bloody frustrating. And it's supposedly $10 a month for three movies, but I can't even do that. So that was going to be my rant. And then you send me an article about variety. How it's getting worse. Well, they're like, listen, we know we've had some problems and we're changing our pricing structure, but we really think we've turned it around this time. And that's when, and then I was like, oh, you know what, man? I'll give it another shot. I'll go back for more. That's why I'm thinking like, so uh, I'm not proud of myself, uh, but (laughs) on the other hand, I really did feel my emotional let me from let me save you to from love yourself, very Chris. very quickly. Let me be that friend. If you have Movie Pass, if you fell for that at the beginning, you're the sucker. Okay, they Jason, didn't do anything to you. Oh, you I, did this to yourself. Wait a minute. I got my money's worth within two weeks. Okay, so what are you complaining about? Because I still want more. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have one last thing for you, Chris. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but yesterday, PETA. People for the Ethical <laughs> Treatment of Animals. They're doing this so that idiots like us will talk about yeah, this. Yeah, they're not well, putting, mission accomplished. I don't believe they're putting this out as a real <laughs> thing. However, it was fairly well done. I think it actually has some humor to it that I don't usually associate with PETA. If they're deadly serious about this, that's even scarier. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. either way. So the thing is, is they would they would like people to stop using anti-animal language. So for example, instead of saying, let's kill two birds with one stone, as we might say. They would suggest that we say, feed two birds with one scone. Does that sound good to you? I think you're going to like, you're probably going to start to adopt these. Uh, that one I may, that was the one that I did think that I, that I may try to do. Okay. The next one is be the guinea pig. Now, instead of, <laughs> and I don't know why it would be bad for a human to emulate being, I mean, wouldn't they want humans to emulate being animals as opposed to killing them? I like, think why because, is be the guinea pig? Because you're because being assuming ex- Exactly. Oh, okay. And you're assuming that that's the regular place of a guinea pig is to be, instead of to be eaten like they do in Peru, or that they should be- like uh, wither away in some kid's aquarium tank in their room. <laughs> yeah, that's, like that's really what happens to most guinea pigs. Yeah. Um, they say be the test tube. Yeah, not quite. Yeah, as- to which I say, test tubes have rights too, man. <laughs> okay. Uh, beat a dead horse. Obviously, I don't like that. The horse is dead. Sure. But to but still- I mean, It is dead. It is dead. It but it could have died of dead. natural horses. Yeah. Natural horses. Um, <laughs> natural feed, causes, you mean. Feed a fed horse. What, what did they mean? Oh, feed a- Feed a fed horse. I don't mean to feed a fed horse, but <laughs> like if you used any of these in conversation, you'd be- you should be beaten. Well, your conversation would end because people would spend so much time trying to figure out what you were talking about. Instead of saying, I'm going to bring home the bacon, I'm going to bring home the bagels. Yeah. Vaguely anti-Semitic. A little bit. That's what I thought, right? Yeah. Um, instead of take the bull by the horns, take the flower by the thorns. <laughs> that's PETA's suggestions, which again, they're hoping idiots like us talk about it. For some reason, reason did you remember- um, Speaking of PETA, there was a documentary on HBO a while ago about like the woman who at the time was running PETA. Did you ever see that? Mm-mm. This is the way my mind works. Like, you know, you and I work together. I forget a tremendous amount of things that occurred to me in the near recent or long ago past. Yet, I somehow, my mind remembers very weird specific details from things from years ago that have no bearing in my everyday life. Right. In this, I believe, HBO PETA documentary, which profiles this animal rights activist, it, it follows her one morning, like getting up out of bed and making herself her breakfast. And her breakfast, I think she's British. Her breakfast was, she would make herself a bowl of oatmeal. And for efficiency's sake, she would stir into the oatmeal a spoonful of jam, like peanut butter or jam. And that was like her breakfast. Sorry, but what's the, what do you mean, for efficiency's sake? Well, like, I'm going to have my protein and my oatmeal, so I'm going to put, like, 
uh, or I'm going to sweeten my oatmeal. So I'm like taking a spoonful of jam and stirring it into the oatmeal. I've just always remembered that. I don't know why that's in my brain. Why do I retain that? But uh, you retain that she did a perfectly normal thing that most people do when they eat oatmeal? Well, first of all, people make oatmeal and they make plain oatmeal and they're going to flavor it with something. I don't personally think of putting jam in my oatmeal. Do you? I, I would. I mean, I, I would eat oatmeal. I think that's gross. But I, would put some, uh, I would put some honey in it maybe or some milk or some cinnamon or some but not jam, apples. Huh? But no, I don't think of jam as an additive to oatmeal. Huh. I don't think anyone listening to this podcast would either. Well, so, you know, right to us. <laughs> that doesn't even matter. That's not what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about. What I'm talking about is why do I remember that? Why that does that good stay question. in my mind? Yeah. I think you're referring to I Am an Animal, the story of Ingrid, Ingrid yes. Newkirk and PETA. That is the one that I watched. Um, and if you watch that. Which I won't. <laughs> well, <laughs> you never know. Um, if you watch that, you can just say to yourself, ah, my mind works just like Jason's. Oh, and if I only too, I could say that. If only could say that. <laughs> um, we talked in last week's episode how we don't have an effective way to close the podcast. Well, I think we've come up with one. Yeah, I um, love this idea. And um, we're just going to start by simply saying, until next time. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.